You're listening to The Souvenir Shop, a podcast about random objects from the past. Number 47. The Raw Recruit. A Royal Marine Commando badge which my father wore on his berry during his compulsory military service. It consists of two laurel leaves supporting a crown, which in turn supports a lion. In the centre lies a miniature representation of planet Earth, something the badge's designer probably thought Britain still owned. I asked Dad why he volunteered for the Marines following his call-up. He was happy to describe the assault course, the 20-mile route marches in full kit, and the unhinged officers barking increasingly absurd orders at him. But to the former question, I never received anything more than the vaguest of replies. He described his entire time in the forces as two wasted years out of my life, a feeling probably not uncommon amongst those called up after D-Day, who never ventured further than Britain once hostilities began to wind down. But there were still a few good days to be had. Dad's first posting was to HMS Royal Arthur. In 1944, the Nazi radio broadcaster and propagandist William Joyce, whom the British nicknamed Lord Haw Haw, triumphantly reported the sinking of HMS Royal Arthur with the loss of all hands. This created much hilarity in Britain because until 1939, the Royal Arthur was better known as Butlin's holiday camp in Skegness now commandeered and repurposed for the duration as a basic training facility. Everything relating to Butlins had been stripped away. Swimming pools, dance halls, red coats, the lot, save for the Butlins motto over the main entrance that greeted any raw recruit arriving there. Our true intent is all for your delight. After a few weeks of learning how to shiver his timbers and splice the main brace, Dad was reposted to HMS Duke near Birmingham, another large training complex nowhere near anything resembling the sea. There were five Jews on HMS Duke, and Dad quickly found out who the other four were. Every Sunday, the entire facility would wear their smartest number one uniforms and march in strict formation to the ship's chapel. Then, standing rigid to attention, they would hear the chief petty officer bark the following order. Fall out all Jews, Muslims, atheists and other heathens. The five of them changed into fatigues and spent the rest of Sunday morning on kitchen duties, scrubbing pans and emptying out rubbish. They had nothing much in common except for their ethnicity and a burning feeling of injustice at having to perform menial grunt work while everyone else grabbed an extra hour's sleep in church. Then one day, a new notice appeared on the daily orders board. There will be a special church parade for Jewish servicemen and women at the Central Synagogue, Birmingham, on Sunday, March the 25th, 1945, at 1100 hours. The address will be given by the senior Jewish chaplain to the US forces. Ratings who wish to attend should report to the regulating office. Without hesitation, all five Jews beat a path to the regulating office door. The man there was very offhand about the whole business. 
There's only five of you, and there's tons of your lot at the Yankee airbase up the road, he said. You'll report there at 0900 hours and travel with them. Dad remembered approaching the airbase with some trepidation. Despite the native weariness with American servicemen being overpaid, oversexed and over here, Dad's generation grew up on a twice-weekly diet of Hollywood films portraying the USA as a land of gorgeous women, wisecracking men in sharp suits, Busby Barkley musicals and the Marx Brothers. The five Jews were directed to a group of lorries in the base's main compound and climbed aboard one to find a group of US Air Force men lounging on benches smoking lucky strikes. A sergeant noticed them and they nervously held out their hands to greet him. He shook each hand warmly, smiling as he introduced himself. Sergeant Hank Goldberg from Chicago, Illinois. You guys going to Temple with us? A private asked them where they were all from and they began to explain about HMS Duke. But the Americans only wanted to hear about their hometowns. To them, such places as Whitechapel and Stamford Hill sounded like quaint country villages until it was explained that they were all from London. All the Americans had yet to visit London and wanted to hear all about Trafalgar Square and Buckingham Palace and Soho, especially Soho, which they pronounced Soho, believing its narrow streets were paved with willing and nubile girls. In truth, none of the five Brits had much knowledge of Soho, all of them being young and not long out of school, but didn't want to disappoint their hosts. By the time they reached Birmingham, they had drawn on their most salacious adolescent fantasies and were firmly established as decadent bon vivant lying somewhere between David Niven and Cary Grant. They reached their destination and piled into the large ornate synagogue packed with American service men and women. The service began and Dad was greeted by the unusual sight of a man in senior officer's uniform covered in robes, prayer shawl and topped by the huge cylindrical hat normally worn by orthodox rabbis. He led them through the prayers and hymns before delivering his address to the congregation. It was part sermon, part pep talk, about the importance, especially for us, of destroying German Nazism and Japanese fascism. This was followed by warnings to keep themselves pure and consider how their mothers would feel if they failed. It finished with a rabbinical blessing and they all piled out into the weak spring sunshine. Where you guys going now? said Hank. The Brits looked at each other. We're going back with you, I suppose, said one. Well, we ain't going back yet. How about you come eat with us at our club? The Americans had the transport and the money. The Brits were chronically skint. Happily, they had no choice. The American Services Club was a large dance hall converted into a home from home for the Allies. As they approached the red brick building, they noticed a rhythmic thumping and by the time they got to the door, they could hear the familiar sound of American patrol in the Glenn Miller arrangement blaring from inside. They knew the record well, but this was no record. It was a live band. American Air Force Band, said Hank. They're visiting this week. 
Dad was overcome with joy. He was going to see the actual Glenn Miller Orchestra. The great man had disappeared over the channel only a few months earlier, but the band was still together and here they were, live. Once inside, the music changed to In The Mood, still one of the iconic sounds of the era. The dance floor was covered with a writhing, jitterbugging mass of khaki uniforms. Legs kicked, skirts swirled, feet stamped in frenzy as Tex Baniki rose to play his saxophone solo. The Brits stood transfixed. The Americans took it more casually. They followed him into the cafeteria and goggled again. The counter was covered in food that none of them had seen in such quantity for years. Eggs, butter, cheese, ham, ham, in great piles. Baskets of fruit decorated the shelves at the back, fresh pineapple, oranges, bananas. They grabbed trays, bottles of coke and filled plates before sitting together at a long table. Hank pulled out a flat bottle of bourbon whiskey from a secret recess in his uniform and poured some into everyone's glass. Lachayam, he toasted. Misol leben ibrayur, responded Dad automatically. By the time they finished the last spoonful of pineapple and cream and drunk the last drop of strong coffee, the bottle was empty and everyone felt very mellow. They were not quite sure how they would be received by the girls in the club. After all, they were younger, poorer and certainly less glamorous than the Yanks. However, they had one great advantage for when the band struck up for their second set. Although they could not compete at jitterbugging or lindy hopping, unlike the Americans, they were all fairly competent ballroom dancers. In the Jewish youth clubs in which they had grown up, dancing was practically the only way boy could meet girl, and certainly the only way in which boy could hold girl, at least on the premises. Johnny Desmond rose to sing at last, a slow foxtrot. When Dad plucked up the courage to ask a pretty Women's Army Corps girl for a dance, his lessons at Miss Marchmont's school, ballroom, tap, ballet, individual or group classes, came into their own. Dad happily discovered that the American style of dancing was much closer than here. Dancing cheek to cheek made conversation impossible, but Dad wasn't interested in talking. He was, in that moment, Clark Gable dancing with Lana Turner at the Copacabana. By the time the band played Moonlight Serenade, their mouths were glued together until Dad felt a tap on his shoulder. It was Hank. Time to say goodbye, lover boy. And Dad landed back in Birmingham with a bump. The Americans were shipping out the next day, so seeing Lana Turner again was unlikely. They promised they'd write, knowing that this was not going to happen. On the journey back, more whiskey was produced, and the five Jews each recounted their stories of the day. By the time they reached the gates of HMS Duke, it was well after midnight. With some difficulty, they climbed down from the truck to find that night's guard glaring at them menacingly. In front of them stood the chief master-at-arms, gently waving a nightstick. Where the bloody hell have you lot been? he yelled. The five managed to form a line 
and stiffly saluted him. Special church parade, sir, they said in chorus. Special church parade. That was The Raw Recruit, written and read by Matthew Diamond, who apologises for his appalling attempt at an American accent. However, if you enjoyed this, then please hit like and subscribe, and maybe leave a review wherever you get your podcasts. And I'll see you next time. <laughs>